You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my fabulous podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, folks. Welcome to the show. All right, everyone. Today, we're talking about selling to the Chief Information Security Officer, aka the CISO, or any executive that's really leading that security motion within an organization. So many of our clients are selling into the security space, and we really wanted to have a conversation to get the buyer's perspective today. So to help us out with that perspective, we have Ken Foster, VP of IT Governance, Risk, and Compliance at Fleet Corps, a veteran of the U.S. Navy. Thank you for your service, sir. A thought leader in the security space and a board advisor, helping organizations maneuver through a number of ever-confusing topics. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time today and welcome to the show. Well, thank you guys for having me on. I've been uh, it's, uh, always interesting to get a, have a different view and have a different conversation instead of just purely a security conversation. And I'm always willing to get out and have those discussions. Can't wait. Awesome. <laughs> and today we're not here to sell you anything. So another good thing. <laughs> so nothing you can relax about. All right. Before we jump into the topic of the day, we always love our audience to get to know Ken a little bit better. Who is he really? So our first question that kicks things off, Ken, is what's something that you are passionate about that those that only know you from a business perspective might be surprised to know? I don't think anybody's too surprised by it, but I am pretty big into long-range shooting. I do a lot with trying to see how far I can stretch my skills on putting very, very small holes in paper to very, very, very long while they're away. So that's, uh, that's something I'm pretty passionate about. That's awesome. And it's only paper, folks. Don't freak out. Uh, as a side note, hey, I sometimes talk about living in the North Georgia mountains and really loving it. As it, When I first met Ken, I was surprised to find out he also lives in the North Georgia mountains. So maybe we're setting a little trend, Ken. It's interesting because I have found out how many people actually have moved up here over the last couple of years. I'm a rare North Georgia native. I grew up here. I've been here most of my adult life. Most of, actually, almost my whole life, other than when I was in the military. Uh, it's funny enough, I've got another engagement this afternoon that they're calling it the North Georgia Security Consortium, basically. And we're, we're all getting together here later, kind of some of the guys that live up in this area. So. If you're serving bourbon, I might join. <laughs> uh, there's a high probability of that. It is a Friday, at least. <laughs> I was going to say, throw that out there because everybody who knows me knows I'm a big bourbon head. So I know probably more about bourbon than I actually probably know about cybersecurity. Wow. <laughs> uh, kind of we'll have to hit you up for tips on bourbon as well as security. <laughs> <laughs> so that said, Ken, tell us a little bit about your story. Like, how did you get to this point in your career? What was the path that brought you here? Yeah, so my path is, I don't want to say it's non-typical, but it's a little more typical for when I grew, come up in this industry, right? Like I said, I was in the Navy for 10 years. I worked on missile fire control radar systems and the computer systems that that ran those and started teaching myself about, uh, back in those days, Microsoft NT and uh, Novell Netware and building out coax networks and figuring that stuff out and kind of had a passion for it and an interest for it. So 
lo and behold, we kind of got permission to build a network on the ship with file server and a Lotus Note server. So the ship had that. And we did that with the ulterior motive of we were bored while we were out sitting in our radar rooms out on the ocean at six months at a time. And we started building and PC gaming was coming into the coming into the fold, right? So we started building games and playing games against each other from our radar spaces. That was something that I've always liked to tinker with things and take things apart and just learn that. So I taught myself computers. Well, lo and behold, back then we called it information assurance, but the command said, hey, we need somebody who can do the still the CIA triad, back then the CIA triad, which is confidentiality, integrity, and availability, right? Back then it was more about locking up documents and keeping them in a safe and protecting them. But then we were starting to build websites for the commands and we were starting to get file servers. So they were asking for people They basically said, hey, you know how to do these computer things. Uh, guess what? You're the information assurance officer for the command. So that's kind of my first foray into the cybersecurity world. Get out of the military, get my first job. I basically working as a Right now, looking back at it, they call them CIOs now. Back then, I was the IT guy, right? <laughs> so anything that plugged into the network or plugged onto wireless or actually probably powered on, I owned it, right? And security was always a piece of that. Started out early days, antivirus, firewalls. As you it matured, the industry matured, the security became a bigger and bigger piece of that, right? So a couple of jobs of working on that infrastructure side, doing a little bit of everything. And then, then I went back to work for the government and worked for our, the intel community for a few years over in Afghanistan, lived over there for a couple of years, doing some stuff around forensics and collections and things like that. And came back and that led into my first job where I became a CISO. <laughs> so I came in and was running both infrastructure and security. So I got my first CISO title, did that for about three and a half years for a company in Atlanta called Rollins. Left Rollins, did a little short stint as a consultant and decided that just wasn't for me. So I went back and took my second CISO gig as a CISO at a company called Mac Stadium, which is infrastructure as a service startup. So did that for a little period of time. Then I went to First Data, came knocking, and I moved over to First Data, where I stepped out of the CISO role into more of this GRC, this risk governance and compliance role, because I firmly believe that to be a good CISO and a good security leader, you must understand risk. And you must understand how to measure risk, evaluate risk, and then report it in the big change was in my the aha moment for me was, and now we all talk about this, and is that we need to be able to communicate risk in a business language, not just cybersecurity speeds and feed type risk stuff. We want to be able to talk about revenue at risk and why is it, what is the overall impact? And that could be regulatory, it could be a security issue. So there's a lot of things that go into making that happen and reporting that up. And I firmly believe you better have a good grasp on that. So and the fintech world is a good place to go do that because the mature being in those highly regulated environments, you get to look at a lot of different areas of risk. And so did that four and a half years. <laughs> we became Fiserv, stayed there, and I decided that I needed a new challenge in my life. So I came over to Fleet Corps. That's uh, been there so just about a year and a half now. So I'm one of those guys, if I feel stuck and feel like I'm not learning and not advancing my knowledge, then it's time for me to go find something else to do. And that's what I like to do. So, 
You and me both, Ken. <laughs> you and me both. No, that's a pretty amazing story. Your background is super cool. I can just imagine the different security challenges and trends as they came out that you saw. Having come up in my own career through startups, like having to go through the SOC 2 compliance, like data compliance processes and training and the audits. And when I first started, nobody was concerned about that. Then all of a sudden, if you didn't have your SOC 2 certification, you couldn't get customers. So you must have seen quite an evolution over the last decade. Yeah, I think that you've seen that and you've seen the frameworks mature, more frameworks come out, more people doing it. I'm still shocked today at the companies and people I talk to. And like I said, I'm out, I'm out networking a lot. I like to go to conferences. I like to get out and go to other things just outside security, right? I, I like to go talk to the CIOs. I like to get into some of these legal conferences, insurance, things like that, because I firmly believe that part of me being able to give back to the community is me getting out and talking about these topics with people who are not living this day in and day out. Preaching to the choir does nothing help but help us vent, right? So if I can get out and talk to people who are in other industries, other areas of industry, have those conversations and help them understand why things are important and why it's a risk and risk reduction overall, I think that's the biggest thing we can do, right, from giving back without being fully employed. And I'm still amazed at the number of companies you would think things like a SOC 2 or an ISO certification if you're over in Europe, you know, you would think everybody would be like, that's a good idea. We probably should be doing it. It's still a little bit surprising that it's not something that people are striving to do. And I understand it's, there's a cost associated with it. And, and everything we do, there's a cost. There's So it becomes a risk-cost evaluation. And that's why it's so important to be able to talk in those languages and go, well, we make this much revenue or this much potential revenue. Here are the gaps we have in our program, whether that be cybersecurity or privacy or just operational, right? You put all that together and most bigger companies now call that, I guess, enterprise risk management, but you feed all that up in, right? And that becomes a piece of enterprise risk management, right? And feeding that up and being able to say, well, if we have SOC 2, it explains our capabilities to our customers and helps them feel more comfortable that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing from due diligence. Now, there are some things about those type of assessments and stuff that people, I think, forget about is the fact that you can scope that to something that makes it very easy to accomplish that, but that scope may not have anything to do with the actual application that you're wanting to use from a company. And I'll tell you this story. I won't tell anybody who it is or even where I talked to them, but a peer of mine said he had a customer reach out. They sold product. They had a customer reach out doing their third-party vendor risk management process and sent them a questionnaire, of course, to fill out, which we can have a whole nother discussion about what a time that is. But he said, they said, well, don't you have a SOC 2? And he's like, well, yes, but the SOC 2 we have doesn't cover this system you're buying from us. And they went, we don't care. Just send us a SOC 2. We just need the piece of paper to say that you gave us a SOC 2. So that's where it gets into their problems with how we report and how we share information today and people's understanding of things like what does a SOC 2 actually mean and is it scoped appropriately and does it cover everything that you want it to cover? Because you can take things out of SOC 2. Like you can say, oh, we're not going to look at DR. 
right? We're not going to see if you have a redundant data center and your stuff can fell over. We're just not going to look at that. We won't look at this stuff, right? So it's there, there needs to be better understanding of what's covered in those things if they're going to be used as the litmus test for whether you should be doing business with a company or not. Well, I can tell you, Ken, if you ever want to try consulting again, you could probably build a whole business just around that because the few times I had to go through it, I think once we actually hired an outside company to do the audit and tell us exactly what we needed versus trying to figure it out ourselves. But the other time it was, uh, they built an in-house committee and no one knew what they were talking about. (laughs) It can be confusing. And I mean, you start getting into all the frameworks and all the best practices and understanding what is an actual if you're in a regulated environment and what is an actual regulation, what is a guideline, what is a best practice? I tell a lot of people right now, security is a concern. Yes, right? Losing data, losing, having a breach, that's a concern. The fines come from the privacy side of the house. So while you're looking at this over here, which is the PCI data and going, oh God, we got to take care of that. Maybe you're not paying as much attention to all this PII data that's for Somebody in Europe, which comes with some pretty serious fines if you are mishandling that data and don't understand where it is and how it moves around. And so I tell everybody, we spend as much time worrying about that privacy side of the house nowadays from a risk standpoint and a governance standpoint, because everything I'm doing from a control framework design and helping the company look at what we need to do to meet all of our risk concerns, and that's regulatory, that's operational, that's cybersecurity and privacy, I should be laying out a control framework that builds to privacy, builds to security, builds to operational resilience, builds to a good BCP plan, right? So I kind of have to look across all that. And we may have, I mean, I know of at least right now off the top of my head, there's probably seven or eight regulatory things that I have to be paying attention to. And they change every day. Right. Especially if you're a global company, because and even in the U.S. now, if you're just even if you're just U.S. based alone and thinking you don't have to worry about GDPR. Well, you got CCPA and CCRA. And I think as of right now, there are five or seven states that have all passed something similar to CCPA. I will bet my paycheck that within the next five years, we will have at least 48 individual privacy laws that are pretty similar. And the only reason I say 48 is because every now and a few states will go, that one's good enough. Just follow that one. We're not going to create our own. Got it. Yeah. Like, let's just use the template from them. Yeah. Here in Canada, we have CASEL, Canadian anti-spam legislation. And we were one of the first ones to implement it. Like we had CASEL before GDPR came up. So it's been something we've been navigating. Part of my team's in Toronto. So yeah. (laughs) Well then. Yeah. Well, so let's pivot slightly over to our main topic, which was actually about selling to a CISO. So just to get started off of that, when someone's approaching you, Ken, with something that they want to talk about, educate you about, how do you recommend they prepare for that conversation? I tell everybody this, this is probably the best way I can put it. And sometimes it may come across as a little blunt, but that happens to be me. But Don't ever come to me and tell me you've got the magic bullet and you know what my problems are and you've come to fix them for me, right? What you need to do is develop a relationship, right? And that may mean, that may be a reached out to me on LinkedIn and say, hey, we've got a product. We Here's a little bit of information. If you are interested, follow up, right? That's one way. 
don't email me or send me a LinkedIn message every day from then on going, hey, did you look at this? Hey, did you look at this? Because I can tell you right now, I have well over 400 LinkedIn connection requests that I haven't clicked accept on, right? Or please follow me for this, or please follow me for that, or hey, I'm bumping this to the top of your inbox because we sent you this and we need to talk to you about it. It's like, if I have interest in it, I will reach out to you. But I will tell you, in some cases, the best thing you can do is find out who on my team is doing that job that you are trying to solve and get them excited about it. Because I'm inundated every day with just hundreds and hundreds of different people trying to get me to look at their product. But if my team brings it to me and goes, we've got this problem, we're living day in and day out, and they're excited about it, and they're selling it to me, I am much more apt to have that conversation with that team, right? Now, if I have a problem that I'm trying to actively fix, I'm going to do a little bit of research on my own. I'm going to reach out, and I'm going to reach out to probably a trusted partner somebody already have a relationship, right? And that's where that vendor relationship, that VAR comes in, but that partnership, right? So I've got some guys and gals in Atlanta that work for a few companies that I trust because I have a long-standing relation, multi-year relationship with them that we've sat down and had in-depth discussions without ever talking about me buying anything but a problem. And I've met their experts, their engineering team, their subject matter experts, and we've had conversations around this. They've shown up to a conference where either I'm attending or I'm speaking, and we've talked about a problem that we have that we're trying to address, not that they've got the thing to fix me. So I will reach out to them and go, I have a problem. You guys see more product than I have the capability to see. Tell me three or four of them that would probably work and tell me the pros and cons of what these products are offering. And then we'll start having maybe a little more deep dive and go, okay, well, I'm interested in maybe these three. Let's set some time up to do maybe some deep dives and do some demo deep dive, get in and ask, let my team, because hopefully it's never going to just be me when it gets to that stage, because I want my team involved so they can ask all their concerns and questions. Because I never want to be the leader that says, hey, guys, guess what? Here's this new shiny toy. Go install it and go figure out how to make it work. That never works out well and becomes shelfware. And you don't want to spend a lot of money on shelfware. So I, I value my team's input probably more than just about anything when it comes to actually putting in the technical, something technical. Right. So. so Ken, that's interesting. So for new startups or younger companies, let's call it, do you think that that reliance on your resellers VAR channel for their expertise because you have existing relationships, should that be one of the main channels that they look at early on? Because so many of them want to go direct first, then on the back end go, oh yeah, we got partners. We should try to pull them in. But it's Based on what you said, it sounds like, and this is what I kind of want to know, hey, these folks have a lot of these higher level relationships and are already trusted. If you want to get a leg up, you might need to go with them. What do you think? Absolutely. They should be looking at that. And I'm a little unique in this industry because I do talk to some of the startups. And, And normally that happens from me 
Well, I can tell you almost every one of them is a either I had a relationship with somebody who went to work for that startup and that was their end to get to have a conversation with me because somebody I've known for years and had relationships with went to work for them. Right. So that's one way that they get in. The other way is, is I may have been speaking somewhere or doing a presentation or having a panel on a topic. And that person was attending that topic or sponsored the event because that's a topic they did. And I may have seen their pitch while I was there and went, you know what, that's interesting. Let me go ask them some questions because it's a way that we haven't thought about solving this problem, right? So I will take normally some time to have those conversations. Not everybody in my seat will. And just to be transparent, not everybody's going to talk to you. Most of them are going to ignore you. We're very rarely going to take the random phone call in the middle of the day. He goes, hey, you got five minutes? Because as soon as I hear, hey, you got five minutes, I'm probably going to hang <laughs> up. As long as if I remember that day, I may not even say anything. I may just hang up. Uh, but the big thing is, again, it's that aggressiveness. And I think this is something that I'm trying to get this message out. The sales cycle into larger companies is not three months. Hell, you're lucky if it's 12 months. It's probably an 18-month cycle. And we need, and for me even to do a POV, it's as much work internally for me to get a POV set up as it is for me to buy the product, right? It's going to take as much runway. It's going to take all the change tickets. It's going to take opening up firewalls. It's going to take... But allocating resources and spinning up a server or something, there's a lot of work. And my team is, they're fully employed. <laughs> they <laughs> got a job. In the company fully employed, right? I would say if we have any resource that's not 125% allocated, I can't find one, right? Because we're in testing something out is going to be almost as, like I said, it's as big a deal for us as it is to actually implement it after we've purchased it. And the practice that I see today in today's startups that drives me crazy, like I said, this is a relationship thing. We've built relationships with your sales team, most of the time with your sales team, with the startup or even a big company, right? But the startups where I see this happening more often, we've been working on this relationship. Things are moving through the process, right? If you come to me with a brand new product today and I'm amazed by it, I still have four months before I start next year's budgeting cycle. Then that budgeting cycle goes through about another four to six months, depending on what the economy is doing. On whether, so we're ten months out from even me having an approved budget, right? And but then I've been working with your guy or your gal this entire time, trying to get this, keep this relationship moving, and then all of a sudden that person's no longer there, and I've got a new charged up aggressive salesperson who thinks they're going to come in and close this deal today. No, the salesperson's not the problem. The problem is on our side that we have a long cycle of getting this stuff done. And now what you've done is you've broken the relationship that I had with a person I trusted at your company. And now I've got to rebuild that trust or I'm going to walk away completely because now I don't trust you because you've done something like that. And I'm going to go find your competitor it maybe has somebody who's still there. So I'm trying to get this message out is, guys, you got to understand that at a startup level, you can't just throw away your entire sales team that has spent a year building up 
relationships with enterprise companies because you're killing your sales cycle. <laughs> you see, you know, because now it starts over. That's the one thing. And I, there's so many of my peers that were talking about that is that it's such a bad practice in the startup world. And rarely will we go direct with a startup anyway, because we need some protection from are they going to be around? So the other things I need to know from a startup is normally I want to know is what your funding rounds look like. What is your exit strategy? Are you building a company that you want to be sold or are you building a company that you want to take public? Right. What is your plan? Because that's everybody's fear with a startup is are they going to be around in six months? Are they going to be around in 12 months or is Cisco or IBM going to buy them or BMC going to buy them? And next thing we know, that technology has been tucked away somewhere to die. Right, because or be poorly integrated with something else that they have. Right. So there's always those concerns with the startup side of it. Now, the upside to the startup is is they're agile. They're looking at problems in a different way than the big things are. And if you're working, you have that kind of engineering partnership with them that you say, okay, you've looked at this problem, you've seen it. Now these are the things I need you to fix. And sometimes they can implement that stuff pretty quickly. Right. So there are some advantages there that they can shift add feature that you really need to make it that thing you want and then they can do it. On the other side of that is, is don't overpromise. Tell me what you deliver. Tell me how long it's going to take you to deliver it. Don't tell me that you've got it's in the pipeline. It's always in the pipeline. But what you're not being transparent about is the fact that that's the last thing on a list of 120 features that you're going to be adding into your product over a three-year cycle, right? And so don't lie to me about your capabilities. Don't lie to me about how long it's going to take you to get it done. There is nobody on the market, and this goes back to the POV and implementation, quit telling us it only takes 30 minutes to set it up. Because like I told you, it may take 30 minutes to flip it into the OM position and start collecting a little data, but it took us three months to get to that 30-minute flip on the switch, right? So it's never a 30-minute setup and run. I mean, hell, I can't open a firewall in 30 minutes unless the place is on fire. That's a seven-day process. So those are some of the big things I think I see out there right now. And it's just, it's, you've got to build a relationship and building relationship takes time and it's trust, right? It's building trust. Now, we is in my side and the CISO suite and the senior leader, we owe it to you to be transparent with how our environment is, right? So we're also not setting you up for failure. Because that also happens a lot, right? Is you people bought the Kool-Aid that it's the easy thing to set up and you can get it in there and it's going to do, but nobody asked the one little question that goes, oh, well, we're segmented. Does this need visibility across all the segments to be able to do what it does on a network layer? And if nobody answered yes to that, guess what? You got a tool that only sees a small piece and then people are trying to figure out why can't we get all this information that you said this tool could do or hey, we've got these weird use cases or in the fintech world, hey, we've got mainframes. Can you do anything with mainframes, right? Can you do something with that data that's on there? Can you help us there? Does your product work on-prem or is it cloud only? Because that's a big thing right now in the startup world, right? Everybody can do all kinds of cool stuff in AWS, Azure, and GCP. And then you say, well, what about all these 
SQL and Oracle and DB2 databases I have sitting in my data center that are not connected to the cloud. Can you do anything with that? And normally the question is, well, no, because we only focused on this. Well, there is no, I would say, midsize up company. They're a rarity that they're 100% in the cloud. We're all hybrid. We need hybrid capabilities. And in most of our cases, the super sensitive data still resides on prem. It's not out in the cloud yet because we're still trying to get our head around how we put it out there safely. How do we upscale our team and upscale our technology? And how do we get it into more of a cloud native, not a lift and shift? Because if we're lifting and shifting, why are we going to the cloud? Because we're not taking advantage. We're actually going to spend more money if we lift and shift, right? Whereas if we refactor and start figuring out and upskill our employees, upskill our technology, then we can take advantage of what the cloud brings, which is that speed and economy of scale and the ability to burst and bring back down, right? And things like that. So we really got to take a hard look at how we're moving stuff out to the cloud. And nobody who is a security person is just like, oh, let's just throw it out there and figure it out, right? Let's crawl, walk, run. So that's a big part of it. So Ken, let me go kind of, I'm a big believer in relationship side. I'm with you on the fact that sometimes we underestimate the effort on the other side of the fence and it comes back to bite us in the butt. In other words, it affects that relationship because we're only thinking about ourselves sometimes, right? Our, our little piece of technology, not everything else around it. One thing I hear from technology companies all the time is, hey, Carlos, you don't understand. We built something that's different. There's no other competitor out there. We need to educate our buyers. They don't even know that we could solve these problems for them. If I had a dollar every time I heard that, I'd be rich. I'll give you my perspective on it. And Ken, I really want you to, I'd love to hear yours. Is and Because what, what I tell them is, hey, look, none of these people, especially the executives, have time to be educated. If they go to an event to be educated, great atmosphere, because they're there for that purpose. But if you're trying your outreach all about just getting time on their calendar to educate them, good luck. Because I think they all want to know right off the bat, why should I even spend time with you? Why should I listen, right? Why would I care in my situation today to take time to want to talk to you? What are your thoughts and perspective on that side? So I agree wholeheartedly. These small regional conferences, and I'm involved with a few of them that hold these, that is where you want to educate because you're exactly right. We're there for that education. We're not there for a mini RSA, right? I'll be at RSA next week. I'm already hedging myself, preparing myself for what that's going to be, right? But truthfully, it's not RSA that's worrying me. It's three weeks after RSA. One Now that everybody has my contact info and new people who haven't talked to me. But if I go to a small one-day conference that has some sponsorships behind it, and the part of that sponsorship is you getting an opportunity to educate the room on a talk track, not necessarily your product. I'm not looking for the hard sell. I'm not looking for you to give me a demo of your product. What I want you to do is you're unique. You're special. You figured out a problem that nobody... Okay, talk about that problem and why you've approached, why you built a product to solve that problem, right? Because now people can understand why your product exists. 
why did you go out and jump? You know, I asked some startups and sorry if my dogs, you can hear them. The UPS man just pulled up and they're barking at him. So why did you build this product? Why did you think about this problem? And what made you think that your product could solve a problem? And what were you thinking that was different than other people? That I want to hear. That I want to understand, right? Because some of the startups I've sat down and talked to, and the first thing I asked them is like, why did you build this? You've jumped into a very muddled market where there's already a lot of competitors. Why do you think that your product is doing something that these other 10 products that are more mature and have been around longer than you, what are you doing that doesn't, that they were not doing? And you need to get to that very quickly. I don't want to hear about all this other BS going on. Get why you built your product and what the problem was that you were looking at that you were trying to solve quickly. And then let's let people ask you questions and tear apart your thinking on it. Because that's the value that we I think we all bring is we've got unique environments and we look at these problems. And the more people that can look at that problem and throw ideas and have a real conversation about it, then we understand what you've done. Or we may we may give you some advice that says, oh, I need to approach this a little different, or I need this use case, or I need, I didn't think about that. That's probably the big thing I can say. These small one-day regional conferences are probably some of the best things. And we get a lot of value out of it too, because one, it's not RSA. So I'm, I'm not spending all day in meetings. What I'm actually doing is sitting in a room with my peers, having a conversation about a problem that your tool may be the thing that solves that problem or is trying to solve that problem. And you get to sit in the room with us and have a discussion because we all want to hear how these 30 guys, senior people in a room, how they thought about the problem, how they approached the problem, what they've done that worked well, what they did that didn't work well, what products have they tried that didn't solve the problem, right? So there's a lot of that that goes on on in these one-day conferences. And I think that's some of the best thing you can do. And then I think the other one is the small, the smaller, intimate, more it may be at dinner, it may be a happy hour, but it, what it really is, is it's a room full of people having a roundtable discussion. You got to keep it in a small enough group that and have somebody who can moderate it and lead the discussion, because if not, it becomes just this mess of everybody talking over each other. But again, it's a topic. It's the topic of what your product is trying to accomplish. You get 20 people in a room who have came there to hear this discussion. Those are the things that work. They also help build that relationship, right? Because now you've got a room full of people going, and there may be one or two people in the room who are your customer already, right? And are, are, your, are somebody who's going to champion that product for you or champion the idea you're trying to do, right? And I think those bring value. So the business development representative offering me a $100 Amazon gift card <laughs> is getting pretty old. You just broke the hearts of thousands of listeners. <laughs> I don't need another Yeti cup ever. <laughs> I've had someone offer me a Yeti cup like 10 times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I have 15 in the cupboard. Like it's <laughs> oh, well, I wish I only had 15. <laughs> I actually have a mandate for my wife to no longer bring Yeti cups home. <laughs> yeah, actually, my husband said the same thing. He's like, this cupboard is ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, It's great to have those at the events if people want to pick them up, but I'm not going to take a phone call from you because you've offered me a Yeti cup. Sure. Right. 
so those are just some of the things I see. And, you know, we're busy. I mean, luckily this afternoon we blocked this time off because if not normally, I would be normally double and triple booked on calls that are not sales calls. They're internal calls that people need me to make a decision on. So our calendars get busy and get very full. And I appreciate that everybody needs that they're asking for us to look at this, but you've got to have that relationship first. And speaking to another point you just made, and I think this is an important thing for people to understand so that they can start those conversations from a place of credibility. What are some of the top priorities for CISOs in 2023? And is Chat GPT, one of them. So I think Chat GPT is going to feed into probably what the number one priority is. The number one thing that we're still all worried about is ransomware, right? So ransomware, it's been growing every year, year over year. I joked about it earlier in the year. I did a keynote six years ago and I was talking about ransomware. I did a keynote this year in January 2023. The number one threat that we're talking about was ransomware. ChatGPT makes those more effective, makes those phishing emails that they're coming in from much more effective. Because, you know, you say you could rely on broken English or misspelled words or just grammar that doesn't make sense or there's tells a lot of times in phishing. Again, people still fall for them, still click on stuff. The truth is, ChatGPT going to make that go away. It's going to become very, it's very easy to have it write you a very well written, a very well a targeted phishing attack, right? And I think that's a big piece of it. It can write code, right? It can review code. It can write code. It makes, it democratizes writing malware. It's going to make that faster. It's going to make it easier. Unfortunately, we've already seen... <laughs> that people are using it to test code and stuff like that. And there's already been a breach caused by of IP because a company put, I know, and I mean, it's in the news, so Samsung developer put their code in chat GPT. So all of a sudden it's public, right? Because now that's in its lexicon and its memory, it's learned it. So you can go find that. I mean, those are the things I think that are we should all be concerned about. And again, I think it really comes down to the fact is, Asking your business why they're running to chat GPT. Do you actually have a real reason to be using it? Or is it just because I think we used to call this the Sky Mall catalog, right? Yeah. And it's always been around. I said, next thing you know, you're implementing something because your CEO read about it in the Sky Mall catalog, right? I think the AI and chat GPT, I think it has great things that can be done with it. I think there's some cool technology coming around it. I think as it improves and gets better, there's probably some really good uses for it, right? I think when it comes to chatbots today and current integration, this having the capability to learn and be better at that, there's some things that make sense. But I think it's like anything, you as a business need to really sit down and think, why would we use this? What are we trying to accomplish with it? But then on the other side of that, you got to go, what are the risks if we use this? What does it expose, right? And we had a great conversation. This, I've been, I was at a conference a couple of days ago and a, with a bunch of CIOs, and we were all sitting around talking about this. And it was the problem with the great thing about the internet and the great thing about chat GPT is you can find all kinds of information. Bad thing about the internet and bad thing about chat GPT is you can find all kinds of information. And the problem is, is what is real? What is wrong? 
what is misinformation, what has purposely been skewed. And I'm a little concerned that now that OpenAI is now no longer a, just a research company that was out there publicly available, right? They got bought, I think, by somebody. So a tool like this, you're going to skew it to give you revenue. You're going to want it to skew towards you, right? We were having a conversation about somebody from Microsoft did a presentation at this conference, and they were talking about some of the walls and rules and what Microsoft has done. It's great, great to put the security and the controls around it. But ultimately, it's Microsoft wanting to use it to and sell their product to get to. So it's always going to skew a little towards that. And you can already see it some if you there's enough out there, too. It is already skewed a little bit towards, and this is more societal stuff, but it's already politically skewed because people are feeding it information to skew it, right? So you're already seeing malicious intent, right? So if you think you're going to use this to solve your problem or answer a question for you, it's too easy for somebody to feed it enough data for it to start learning something that is misinformation or malintent, right? And then, like I said, people not thinking about, oh, I just put all this code in here, this IP, and now it's publicly available because I did this, right? And that's something that I don't think people were thinking about. I mean, you can't get it to write you malicious code by telling it I need, like I've tested it. I asked it to write me a, a brute force password cracker. I said, write me a Python script brute force password cracker. And it told me it can't do that. But now if I know enough pieces of the code that I copy and paste it in there and tell it to validate it for me and make sure it's working correctly, we'll do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's some of the stuff that I think is big concerns for us. But I think the bigger concern, again, is just the fact that People don't understand fully why they want to go out and why they want to use this tool. And they don't have a plan. It's like anything. They don't have an actual plan on how to get to it and what they really want to accomplish with it, which makes it dangerous. Yeah. So we talk about creating a mutual success plan with customers. So almost even beyond just an organization deciding what they want to do, we got individuals, right? So one individual said, hey, I'm going to try this thing out. So I'm going to feed it all this basic company information that I know about this client to have it help me write a response back, which on the surface, it did a pretty good job. But then behind the scenes, you kind of go, you did what? You just put all this customer-specific information out there and you don't really realize the ramifications of that. And that's the big question mark behind the scenes, right? I don't think, even as people play with it, you, you go, hey, you realize everything you feed it it now owns. It could do whatever it wants with it. So it'll be interesting where this thing goes. Like, should organizations limit the use of it to start just to limit exposure? Yeah, and I, I think I read an article about it. One of the first things on a dark web forum that was showcased with it was it writing a Python script that went out, searched computers, grabbed files of interest, compressed them, and moved it out through the system and was basically untraceable because it was able to figure out, write it in a way that made it look as normal process. It encrypted it. It found the files, compressed them, encrypted it, and then moved them out of the network. Wow. That's why I said this demonstration of malicious intent, right? Because now I think you have to worry. One thing that's running through my mind on this, and this is just my own personal opinion, is... This makes the disgruntled insider threat much easier for them to do a lot more damage, 
right? Because they don't necessarily have to be a developer or a coder or a security person or an IT person. They can be a call center agent that is upset with you, that can log in, get bad code, release it on your network because I can log into it on most corporate networks. It's not blocked, right? I can just log in, sign up for a free account with a fake email address to get it to write me some code that causes havoc and release it onto my computer inside the network, right? So those are the things that scare me about it. But it's also very hard to get people to say, well, let's just block it, right? Because now somebody's like, well, how do we use this to generate revenue, right? So you got to give people a safe place to do that experimentation and innovation with it. But you've also got to protect yourself from it being turned against you from an internal user. So that's the one thing that scares me the most. And I don't think it's been talked about enough in a lot of the articles and stuff you're reading. It makes it much easier for a disgruntled employee to cause havoc. Yeah. And I'm with you about the bias. I'm sure Microsoft did not invest in them out of the charity of their heart. So long term, that'll be interesting. Hey, I know we could go on forever and I you know we have limited time and you probably have 15 other phone calls to get to. So one last big question and we'll close it out. We call it Acceleration Insights. Hey, what might be that one piece of advice you would share with our listeners to help them in achieving their own goals? And Ken, maybe it's a personal advice sort of thing because you've been very successful and you've had a great career. Maybe it's something around that. What might be that one little piece of advice you'd want to share with our audience? So a couple of things, right, is a if you're interested in getting into cybersecurity, do it. Please get, we don't have enough employees. We got negative unemployment. There's The thing is, is don't think you need to be some super technical person to be in this industry. We need people who understand process, understand business process, understands how a company's trying to make revenue and can do that analytical work and help us figure out how to secure it. So if you're interested, reach out to somebody get involved with it. Ask your internal teams if you want to stay where you're at and see if they can shadow you and get you out there and just learn and pick it up because you're bringing a perspective to it that maybe the team that is the super technical team hasn't thought about. So if this is something that interests you, don't be afraid. Look, I've done this. I have no formal cybersecurity training. I am a self-taught person. I didn't go to college for this. I didn't go to college. I went to the military. My training is in electronic engineering and systems that fire missiles and run radars and stuff like that, right? I got into this because I was curious. And I think the best piece of advice I can give anybody, I'm passionate about this as a job. I enjoy doing this as a job. That's why I've been doing it for 30 years now. Find something that you're passionate about and go do it, right? And Look, I can teach somebody the technical part of cybersecurity. What I can't teach them is to be a critical thinker. Spend time figuring, critically think. Set yourself aside some time to think critically about problems. And don't just believe everything you read from ChatGPT because it may not be correct. <laughs> right? So that's probably the best advice I can give everybody is set yourself some time and critically think about it. And don't be afraid. Like the reason I'm where I'm at is I've never been afraid. I've never ran away from a problem. I've always been the person that when I'm at a company and I'm doing well and they come to and go, hey, we'd like your opinion on this. And I may, I'm not an expert on it or, or I've ever been probably, but I'll go figure it out. 
I'll go do the research. I'll go critically think about the problem and I will figure out how to solve the problem, at least from my point of view. Or And then I can sit down and have that conversation with a larger crowd and we can solve problems. We can solve the world's problems that way if we'll just talk to each other and critically think through things. So. Perfect, Ken. That's some great advice. So wrapping up, if a listener was interested in discussing any of these topics we covered today with you, or even potentially hiring you to come in and speak for an event of theirs, what's your preferred method for them to contact you? Probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is probably LinkedIn, to be honest with you. That's probably the best way I'll tell them. Just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Make sure they refer that they heard it here. That way it it moves it to the top of the pile. <laughs> Has a little more relevance. It gets to the top of those 400. <laughs> yeah, that way it's got some relevance, right? Just because, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to even open it up right now, but I'm looking at LinkedIn right now and there's a whole bunch of stuff on here that I've just gotten pinged on since I cleared it out the last time. So it's, yeah, that's probably the best way. Just reach out, reference this. Happy to have a discussion. Understand that I've got a pretty packed schedule and it may take me a little while to get back to you, but I will get back to you. There we go. And for anybody who may just be listening to this, who is interested in a career in this and wants advice on that, those always get bumped to the top of my pile. And especially if they're a veteran, I am big at pushing and helping veterans transition out of if they're in or if they're looking for something better because. I feel that we get some of the best critical thinking training out there when we go in and serve the country. So those always get moved up to the top of my pile as well. Amazing. Well, Ken, cannot thank you enough for joining us and taking the time today, especially since we know how valuable it is. It's been fantastic having you on the show. I appreciate it, guys. Anytime. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your friends, your family, your coworkers. You can subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Lisa Schneer, and I'm here with my podcast partner, Carlos Noche. Until next time, we wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.